Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. My name is Toby, and I'm the host of the Secret Transmission Podcast, we are a show that discusses the paranormal, conspiracies, the supernatural, UFOs, cryptozoology, and anything else weird. Our show is transmitted to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. You can also follow us on Twitter for updates, at Secret Transpod. So get ready to put on your tinfoil hats and come learn with us as we try to explain the unexplainable. <laughs> Greetings, comrades. And today we're on the special episode about dead Lenins. I would have named this Dead Kennedys, but it's Lenin that we're talking about. At any rate, uh, yeah, this episode is going to tell you the crazy story about what happened with Lenin after he died. He also became an icon of the Soviet people and its government throughout his death, but but it changed meanings, and that stunned me the most. The interesting part is how all these meanings changed and how it all began and what it meant later on and what what is going on today in Russia about Lenin's body and what discussions people are having. Now, I do have to say the first part is much more organized and interesting than the latter one because, as it turns out, there's not much going on with Lenin in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The interesting part is actually concentrated in the very beginning in the Snape era and then after Perestroik in modern day, with some crazy prophecies and, and weird studies going on. But that allowed me to once again return, return to my roots and, uh, you know, give you some Soviet anecdotes, political ones, about all the zeitgeist here. And I'm sorry about some um, some weird pronunciation there is a latter part, because we have a racetrack right next to our home and they started doing crazy things, so I couldn't do another retake of, of the last part of this episode. Now, before we get to Lenin, there's another person that we have to mention up first, I think. Let's talk about Nikolai Ivanovich Pirogov. He is considered to be the founder of field surgery and one of the very first surgeons that used anesthetics. He was also the first surgeon to use anesthesia in a field operation in 1847 during the Crimean War. Also, being a specialist on treating various traumas and fractures, he invented his own brand new methods, and thus, he's one of the most widely recognized Russian physicians. But we actually care about what happened when he died. See, he died in 1881 in Vinitsia, which is now modern Ukraine, when Lenin was just 10 years old. The interesting thing is that his wife decided to preserve his body for the next generations to seek his likeness. So Pirogov's body is preserved and rests in the church in the city where he died, Vinitsia. He himself invented and created many of the embalming techniques that were used on his corpse, and later on that of Lenin's. In January 1924, Lenin died and was moved to Moscow from Gorky in a special funeral train. It arrived on the 23rd of January and carried Lenin's body in the cargo cart number 1691. It was a special train because this was Lenin's official train, personal train with a designation number U-127. Official and designated that was just specifically made for him. And he had been made its honorary elder mechanist about eight months before his death. Of course, of course, it was operated by specifically assigned and vetted crew from the Moscow depot. Dzerzhinsky was responsible for this. Now, as the body arrived, nobody had at this time any idea on what to do with it. The important thing was to ensure that everyone could say goodbye to the great leader of the revolution. 
Stalin himself personally led the funeral arrangements, ensuring that he maintained a high profile. He acted as the lead pallbearer and was a chief mourner. He lay in this state of nobody knowing what to do with him for four days in Moscow's House of Unions. During which time, almost a million mourners paid their respects, from all parts of the USSR, and there were people informing the Soviets that there are foreign delegations incoming as well. Trotsky, Stalin's rival for power, who was recovering from illness near the Black Sea, missed the funeral, having been told the wrong date by the scheming Stalin. But these foreign visits and the whole mass of people caused huge problems for the Soviet government. You see, it was minus 40 degrees outside at the time of his death. And minus 40 is, luckily enough, where Fahrenheit and Celsius comes together, so everyone can understand this. The body was frozen solid. Inside the Moscow's House of Unions, it was a bit warmer. Only 19, minus 16 degrees Celsius. <laughs> and and they, had been, they had brought in specific palm trees and other decorations, just to you know, make sure the room wasn't as gloomy, even though I have no idea why palm trees should needed to be brought in for Lenin, but they did so, it was cool at the time, hey, it's 20s. But even that, even everything they had brought in was completely frozen. And imagine this, a million people just coming towards this house of unions and paying their respects while it's minus 16 Celsius, which is ridiculously cold. So, you know, while this whole thing lasted, while these four days lasted, there were no issues. But, with the visits and people coming in and everything, which according to the plans would continue for about two months, the Soviets had to somehow extend the peri- period of Lenin's corpse being preserved, and, you know, they had to create a mausoleum for him where people could see him, and this caused issues. Firstly, it was decided to build a, t- build a temporary wooden wooden tomb in the Red Square, while a proper mausoleum would be built, and, you know, well, while people would decide what would be going on there. Architect Alexei Shushev was charged with building a structure suitable for viewing of the body by mourners, and it was ready pretty soon. As it was very cold outside, the temporary preservation work wasn't very difficult. Yuri Lopukhin, who was the leader of the mausoleum group since 1951, up until his retirement in the 80s, states, quote, You know, when he was placed in the coffin, it was kind of like his funeral already. However, there were simply too many people who wanted to say farewell to Lenin. There were delegations from all the regions and the foreign ones too, and so it was necessary to somehow place his coffin in a place where people could visit him, and it was needed to preserve him. For a while. In the beginning, there were no thoughts that this would go on forever. And by the way, due to this, as they thought at the time, temporary nature of things, uh, yeah, and then there's this joke that nothing is more permanent than temporary things, after the decision to preserve the body was made later on, Lenin's brain was removed, and kept in formaldehyde for two years, before being sliced into 30,963 wafer-thin slices to be studied and examined in minute detail to work out exactly how the brain of this genius worked. And uh, this is just a foreshadowing of the mad science that's incoming here. And about mad science, yeah, this was the NEP era, the new economic policy which we talked about last episode. This was the brand spanking new Soviet Union, not the old rustic kind. Uh, this was the triumph of the communists. The prosperity of the country could slowly return. Well, sort of, but officially it had. But more importantly, this was a period of ideological victories for the USSR. Lenin died during the period where Bolsheviks felt like they were winning. Felt like man could conquer nature. Felt like their ideology reigned supreme. They were like in complete control and man could march forwards. But all of this was just... In, in, in this uh, structural nature, you see. This was all about, you know, we had won in the political sphere, our ideology reigns supreme, we are quickly advancing and catching up to the capitalist nations and we shall overcome them and world revolution and yada yada yada. But the nature goes its course, doesn't it? <laughs> so, while this temporary preservation was going on, it slowly took on an ideological character. Now, now, first off, there were Soviet scientists who thought about this whole thing and declared that, you know, as communists had won in this political country, this they had acquired this major victory, and their economy was recovering and everything, they must also conquer nature. And as science marches on, they looked on at what could already be done at the time, such as, mind you, 
Sex change operations, a theoretical by this point, but seriously, they really mention sex change operations, which is weird for very conservative Soviet Union, but these were looked at as a major victory over nature by the Soviet scientists. See, they, they at this point thought that, you know, it doesn't matter about sex change, whatever, we beat nature, we are awesome. And they thought, you know, they were very optimistic about their capabilities in the future in comparison with the past. Other scientists had done crazy things, uh, and, and they just thought that, you know, actually believed that, and declared this, that it might be very possible that in a few decades, proper resurrection would be available, probably only to the great leaders of the time, but even further on, to everyone. And so it was recommended to the Politburo that Lenin should be put in a deep freeze. And this, obviously, appealed to the communist leaders for ideological reasons, whether later resurrection would be real or not. Not even kidding here, and I know that this sounds like science fiction, but... Remember that this is Lysenko's and Pavlov's era of mad Soviet science. Listen to our April the 1st episode. At this point, this wasn't even the craziest thing that the USSR was working on. I mean, we are talking human-monkey hybrids for armies. We are talking about making sure there are two heads on one dog and experimenting with crazy things with, with just on, a, on the surgical and genetical levels. This is the period of utter craziness. So at this point, they thought that this whole thing is going to work and they might resurrect him one day. And it was kind of crazy. Secondly, there was another, another symbolic meaning to this whole Lenin's death thing. Historian Nina Tumarkin writes, quote, The sadness that overtook everyone following Lenin's death was, for the most part, caused by other circumstances. Saying farewell to the dead Lenin in Moscow and the morning ceremonies in other cities, without doubt, was also a moment of strange catharsis to the people, who at the time had survived through a multitude of horrors. War, revolution, civil unrest, starvation, epidemics. Lenin's death became the reason for the first national common ritual of mourning after all these hardships, and in part was a way to mourn their own personal tragedies. The society was overtaken by hysterical sorrow, by an open desire for everyone to go and grieve about the dead Lenin, in a way now being finally able to grieve about themselves. The massive Lenin's cult that was spreading around the cities and the countryside in 1924 had a goal to allow the people to cry it out, to acquire some peace for themselves. And as such, it was encouraged by the government, as these feelings of grief about Lenin's death were similar to the feelings held in general by the Soviet population at the time. And if people acquired some peace for themselves, it only increased the state's stability. At the same time, during the February thaw, because this body stayed in this temporary holding for at least six weeks, where more millions of people visited it, the body had started to show signs of decomposition, with grey and black spots starting to appear. First, first they just couldn't keep him in a freezer for an extended period of time. Moscow and the USSR in general had huge issues with power outages at the time. That could last for days. And with the power needed for such a freezer, it would not be possible to ensure that everything would go smoothly with the body. Now that they didn't try, though, some risky decision was made to embalm and preserve the body, according to the latest inventions of science, and using the studies of our earlier mentioned Dr. Pigorov specifically. But yeah. This whole freeze, no wait, let's make him a mummy thing, deserves more explanation. So, here's what happened in glorious detail from an amazing source in Kak umir Lenin od Krivinje Smatritelje Mavzoleja, or How Lenin Died, Mausoleum Gardens Relations, by a previously mentioned leader of the whole thing, Yuri Lopukhin. So, as Lopukhin informs us, after Lenin's death, there was a decision to temporarily embalm his body in the beginning, for the temporary embalming and freezement, as it was called. Uh, as it got combined with the low temperatures, they used the standard solution of formalin, zinc chloride, spirits, glycerine, and water. They opened the chest cavity and took his ribs out, putting in the conservation liquid through the aorta with a special high-pressure needle. As the doctors of the era report, this helped Lenin to regain his natural coloring and eliminated some, some of the spots that had started to appear. This was about the same time as the wooden tomb was built. And no less than Stalin, 
Molotov, Kalinin, and Dzerzhinsky carried Lenin's coffin inside the tomb. Imagine that, the whole big league players of the USSR at the time. Notice the absence of Trotsky, however. Another weird, and kind of sweet moment, is that Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, will write on the 28th of January, 1924, a letter. Dedicated to, guess what, Ines Armand, who was also deceased by now, I have to remind you, Lenin's lover. And yes, I know that's super weird, but honestly, these are Bolsheviks we're, we're talking about here. Anyhow, Krupsky writes, <clears throat> quote, Loved one, native mine, Innochka. Yesterday we buried, we buried Vladimir Ilyich. He wandered around for the last time. Just recently, on Sunday, we worked with him. I read him about the party meeting at the Soviet conference. The doctors didn't await death at all, and didn't even believe it when the agony started. They also said that he was unconscious during the whole ordeal, but by now, I know for sure that doctors don't understand the thing. So that apparently was normal and, and happened, but yeah. Lenin's body was in the cold tomb in a state like this for a long while, until at the very end of March, 56 days after his death, finally a decision was made to preserve and embalm him. This comes from my source, so I'll just add there that it was for political and ideological expediency, mostly. First mention about the long-term preservation of Lenin's body was made on the 28th of January by an engineer Krasin, who was at the time of the People's Commissar of Internal Trade. His idea was accepted, and already on the 30th of January, in the meeting of the created subcommission on what to do with Lenin, Professor of Anatomy, Deshin, and another professor, Abrikosov, were ordered to conduct experiments with freezing corpses uh, who had been previously treated with the same conservation liquid that Lenin had been treated with. In the 4th of February 1924, for, quote, looking at the most important problems which necessitate a quick and decisive decision-making and constant supervision, a special troika was created, consisting of Molotov, Kasin, and one other guy whom I won't really bother you with, this is the literally only thing he have appeared in, uh, Bonj Brusha. Now, these guys were supposed to decide what to do with Lenin's corpse further on. So, this troika, under the lead of Molotov, basically decided to buy all the necessary freezing equipment in Germany, and assigned people to work on this project, and under pain of death, commanded both of our professors to start experimenting with freezing bodies and to report on their successes. This experimentation, by the way, would go on to modern day. Up until today, uh, as the Lenin's body is constantly being washed twice a week on Mondays and Fridays at uh, 10 a.m., exactly, uh, the people just come in and wash the body, <laughs> and uh, they have special corpses being preserved from 1924 up until this time in the exact same conditions as Lenin is. So, this tradition of just, you know, grabbing <clears throat> quote-unquote volunteer corpses was getting on there. So yeah, these guys, these guys had been tasked to observe the condition of the body before as well, but now, now this was getting really serious. And by the way, reports were extremely, extremely, like, reasonable. They account the condition of various spots on the body and its coloring and literally everything imaginable by hours. And so, this went on until the 21st of February, when, by the way, all the preparation work for Lenin being frozen was completed. Now, about the spots there, one interesting fact is that as color photography didn't exist in the USSR at the time, the government tasked a special artist to paint exactly the color of the skin of various Lenin's body parts and the spots that had appeared on there, on, on paper sheets, so that everything could be recorded and later restored. And these these were signed by uh, the Politburo members and lead officials of the Cheka by this point, and he had to do it exactly, or, you know, gulag. Gulag or shooting, you know, things that just happened. And by the way, these things are kept in special files to this day. But on this 21st of February, the unexpected happened. All the labor and efforts of Krasov, of, of Krasov, the engineering group, and the experiments of Deshin and the Berkosov were just thrown out the window, and the deep freeze project was cancelled. Why? Well, like I mentioned before, because of the simple reason of the power outages in Moscow. It was quickly calculated that a massive freezer that would keep Lenin deep frozen just would not happen with the technology of the time. It basically needed the factory of its own to operate. And Moscow 
well, no city, in fact, in the USSR could be able to support it efficiently, especially with the flimsy power of the situation back then. This is a tendency in the USSR in general, as you might have noticed from my show, for them to make huge projects, and only when they're almost done, to test if they're actually viable. And thus, huge resources are lost all the time, but hey, not, not that we care about such meager things. And at the same time, two different scientists, students of the previously mentioned Pigorov, appeared on the scene. One of them was Vladimir Petrovich Vorobyov, and the other one was Boris Ilyich Zbarsky. And they were persuaded with hard methods to keep Lenin's corpse intact without freezing because they had the know-how, as they were both anatomy professors. See, what was important was that they both had their um, sins against the Soviet Empire. For starters, they both were from the lesser nobility of Jewish origin, uh, rich city dwellers. They were bourgeoisie class people. Sort of the people Lenin used to shoot in public and take all their stuff away, you know. But that just wasn't even enough of this. See, while they were working in the Kharkov University Anatomy Cathedra during the Civil War, they had investigated some very violent murders of white royalist officers. And as then, who controlled Kharkov changed very often, Basically, they just wrote an honest answer, which was one of their biggest mistakes, stating that the Reds were responsible for brutally murdering white army officer POWs, and that they had looted them, and that they had desecrated the corpses too. And But that wasn't their biggest mistake. Their biggest mistake was that they had signed this statement themselves. And when the Soviets won, this didn't look good at all. So, they ran away for a while. They ran away to some random countryside, also in the Ukraine. But when this time came around, they were kindly persuaded by our good old friends in Cheka to, you know, trading in not being shot on the spot and their families not being sent to Gulag for making sure that their brand new, crazy at the time, unheard of, project of preserving bodies in a lifelike condition without freezing would work out on Lenin. And, you know, then they would not get shot. Or sent to Gulag, which they would totally be, with direct threats, if they would fail. When, by the way, this atmosphere of dread carried on throughout the whole Soviet era. And the people working in these labs were extremely secretive, never writing down what they did or sharing it with the outside world. Because the people working in there, for all the posterity, while the Soviet power existed, uh, knew so much, and they really were thinking about how intelligence was treated there, so they wanted to figure out a way how to be kept irreplaceable. And even though the solution that preserved Lenin's body was mostly glycerine and water and other quite simple things, it was brought on to the powers that be as very super high-tech and extremely complicated, so that, you know, they just couldn't be replaced or shot or, you know, working on a such useful project, knowing something that nobody else did, really kept you alive and prosperous and in high positions and, well, wealthy and well-off during the Soviet era. <laughs> but I'm running a bit ahead of myself. At any rate, all this is just one of the theories and studies of, on how Lenin got embalmed in the first, first place. A second one, as reported by no less than Trotsky who wasn't even informed about the moving of Lenin's body to the tomb and was being actively pushed out of power by our good old buddy Stalin at the time. Yeah, this is a bit stranger. See, he wrote about a meeting of the Politburo in autumn 1923, where Stalin declared that there's a possibility that, quote, some fine comrades from the provinces, end quote, would embalm Lenin in case of his death. Trotsky writes the following, quote, when Comrade Stalin finished his speech, only then it became clear to me where these, in the beginning, uh, weird and uncomprehensible winks and nudges and ideas were going. He said that Lenin was a Russian person and that he needs to be buried like a Russian. Now, being buried like a Russian, according to the canons of the Russian Orthodox Church, means that, you know, the saints became relics and there was obviously the idea of Lenin's importance and him being worshipped by the people. And apparently to us, the party of revolutionary Marxism, the right way of action that's being suggested here by Stalin, is going in the same direction. To preserve Lenin's body. Previously, there were relics of Sergei Rabozhenskov and Serafim Savroskoy, 
and now they want to replace them with relics of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. I would totally want to know who are these comrades from the provinces which, according to Stalin, will, with the help of modern science, embalm the remains of Lenin and thus create a relic from them. I'd say that they have nothing in common with the science of Marxism. End quote. Now it has to be noted that Trotsky wrote this letter after Stalin, after Lenin's embalming, but it's still one of the major opinions out there. There are also other important historians that correspond to this occultization of Lenin idea by Stalin. The idea is that Stalin wanted to recreate a historical paradigm, giving the people a czar in the person of himself, and a new god to worship in the person of Lenin. Uh, Bukharin, which we mentioned in previous episode, the, the NEP supporter and Stalin's ally at the time, wrote in an open letter that, quote, mm. We, instead of icons, are now worshipping leaders and persons, and they are trying to re- create relics of Lenin and communist sauce for the proletariat and the masses. And according to sources, in 1946, Stalin has apparently said to Professor Molachov, who was among others working in the group tasked with his own biography, he said to him that, quote, Marxism is a class religion. What we say is law is mandatory to the people. What we say becomes a symbol of faith to them. End quote. Hey, and these are Stalin's words, not mine, and Stalin will be later really much criticized by the personal cult that he created. But we'll get to this in future episodes, but this is where this begins, I think. Also, and this was going on in the streets, because rumors from the time are just crazy. Another popular opinion, going around in said rumors, was that one of the reasons of Lenin's embalming was actually to prevent any pretenders from rising. Uh, here we can draw some rel- relevance and some analogy to what happened before during the time of troubles in Russian history. There were rumors among the people that Lenin had tried to escape from Kremlin and wanted to apologize in front of all the people for all of this communist mess. But, however, was stopped by the Stalin-appointed guards in Gorky and isolated there, and now was just being presented as dead. But there were also other rumors. Uh, I'm just discounting uh, these which state that Trotsky poisoned him, or that Jews poisoned him, which involves Trotsky because he was Jewish and anti-Semitism is on the rise in the Soviet Union and this era. Yeah, there were, of course, as soon as something happens, the Jews did it, even the USSR. But uh, these were just, you know, all-around rumors. But there were some interesting rumors which were in specific areas. For example, in the Moscow area, people mostly rumored that Lenin had actually died six months ago and that he had been kept frozen for all this time because of Politburo being afraid of revolts that might happen if the people would find out. In the Irkutsk region, people spoke that Lenin was actually alive and had fled the country together with Trotsky, and that this whole death thing was a cover-up because the communists had massacred the protest action by the unemployed, and that at the same time a pogrom against Jews had happened, and this needed to be toned down. In Belorussia, in Minsk, people rumored that uh, Lenin was assassinated, not by Trotsky or Jews, no, 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 by the Poles and Pilsudski, and that a new war with them is coming soon, as uh, Pilsudski knew that uh, all the communist power rested upon Lenin's shoulders, and that he would use this to crush Soviet authority. And that obviously Trotsky had been arrested with his allies, while carrying huge amounts of Tsarist gold, which he had stolen as a, as a part of massive Jewish conspiracy. See, when something like this happens, the whole nation goes crazy, and it's always the Jews to blame. Even in the Soviet Union, it's... Uh, I, I think it's kind of a historical uh, historical thing by, by this point, but the more ru- rumors you read, the crazier it gets. So this, this is how the embalming project began. But what happened later? Oh, it's just as grand as this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi. This is Alice. We would like to say a great thank you to our new patrons, comrades Jonathan and David. Thank you very much. For anyone who wants to join our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash the eastern border. People who are our patrons receive all sorts of goodies, including Anna Politkovskaya's book, A Russian Diary. The newest part of the book has also been released today, and all our supporters have access to it. So we really hope you enjoy it. And now, back to the show. During World War II, the body was removed from the mausoleum in October 1941 and evacuated to Tumen in Siberia when it appeared that Moscow might be in danger of capture by German troops. Of course, it was moved by a top-secret train and guarded by special, especially selected soldiers who had no idea, for the most part, who were there moving around. And no one in the town of Tumen also had any idea, because once the troops had been moving, had moved this object, as they only knew it was, then they had been just sent away. And special NKVD, later KGB, previously Cheka, soldiers were sent in to guard it. Uh, it was kept in a specific mansion in Tumen from the old style of mansions, you know, pre-Civil War ones, pre-Revolution ones, a huge mansion of the local lesser nobility. This mansion was, like, all the windows were just bricked, closed, and the whole mansion was just instantly instantly covered around with, with brick walls and fences and everything, and a massive top-secret guard was placed there. The soldiers who had been placed to defend this, this body and to look after it, and to watch over the scientists to make sure they do not screw up anything, they were specifically excused from going on to the front lines. There are reports that they also kind of often complained about the quality of the food which they received there in Tumen, which the locals, by the way, did not understand, because even though the quality of food that they got was way worse than in the Kremlin's, Kremlin's own cafeteria, for the local girls, these soldiers were basically the idols, and there are many reports about this, because, because they had white bread, I mean, you know, the, the wheat bread that you put on toast. Uh, previously, the Soviet bread was just this uh, gray brick-like substance. And, and they had meat, uh, they had preserved meat in these, in these conserved, uh, conserved cans of things. Uh, they had that, and they also sometimes had some wine, even. So, yeah, they complained about the quality of the food, but for locals during the wartime, it was exquisite thing. And, you know, the scientists who were working there, they were under immense massive pressure, because... Because the bath with the Lenin's body in, inside this preserving embalming liquid was placed on the second floor of this mansion, with all the windows, by the way, being just bricked closed with stones and everything. But yeah, they had the best service the state could offer. Once, when they ran out of distilled water from which to make this embalming liquid, it got specifically delivered to them from Omsk with a, with a plane on the very same day. Preservation of Lenin's true the Lenin's corpse by this point was a matter of extreme importance because and this also lends some credibility to the claims that they basically made a relic out of it, as you know he was worshipped with, with like almost almost a godlike reverence by this point. Uh, it it will only be a bit later, just you know in the forties they start to appear, but it would basically be only after World War Two when political jokes about Lenin 
would start to appear. Previously, it was kind of, you know, a true reverence about all the situation there. It was like uh, in 1936, for one, before the war, when we speak about the severance, there was a letter by a factory worker from Nizhny Novgorod who wrote to the, to the newspaper Pravda about his visit to the mausoleum. And he wrote, quote, Well, you know, these times are hard, and, and we're uh, enduring a lot of hardships, and there's, there's not, everything is just kind of not okay. But whenever you kind of start to think about how the government could be doing things better, and whenever you want to complain, then you just go to Moscow and stand by Lenin's tomb for a while, and everything just falls into your place, and you all, you just want to keep being completely loyal subject and a comrade to everyone. Yeah. But yeah, during World War II, these guys were kind of complaining about boredom while guarding Lenin's corpse, well, instead of being sent to the front lines. And this is this is kind of weird, but yeah, he sat there in Tumen for four years after, of course, being uh, being returned to the mausoleum in Kremlin, and his tomb was reopened again to the public. Now, when Stalin died, uh, he was also placed in this tomb uh, in the same way as Lenin from 1953 to 1961, but he was then later removed as part of Khrushchev's anti-Stalinist uh, anti-Stalinist acts. At the same time, there were also many other, you know, leaders from the foreign-friendly countries who thought, you know, we had to do everything like the Soviet Union, so let's have embalming for ourselves. Something similar was about to happen in Hungary, but that didn't last long. Uh, Tito in Yugoslavia later, uh, as, as a listener of mine reported in, he wasn't a fan of becoming a mummy, but he had this special mega-exclusive tomb to which people went on pilgrimage, and thanks for that piece of information. But yeah, this cult of, you know, having your first leader being in a tomb, uh, being observable and being preserved, that kind of went on and was a fad for a moment. Oh, it's still, by the way, going on in uh, North Korea. There, Kim Il-sen is still being, being preserved there, and of course, Lenin's tomb uh, and, and his mausoleum in, in Russia. But yeah, this super secrecy just increased and got even more stronger than before during the Stalin's increasingly, increasingly despotic reign. Because if previously, during the Nep era, you could be a bit more free and there was some freedom of the press, then now... Now, it got really crazy under Stalin. But Stalin died and passed away, and then we enter the Brezhnev's era of Lenin and his mausoleum. Now, truth to be told, uh, after, after World War II and Stalin's death, the whole story kind of gets a bit more boring. It's not as crazy as before, but it's it's fun at the same time. Because, you see, after Stalin's era, Khrushchev took power, and later on, even though the newly built mausoleum, which was grand and what you can see today if you visit Moscow, was extremely important on the official level and became a major tourism object and guarded with reverence by the Soviet authorities and used in all the parades and, and pioneers had to go there and place flowers there, that's a story of a different era. I wanted to focus on, on this early period here, but the whole cult of Lenin by this point had become kind of, um, silly and laughed at. Now, obviously not in the open, but uh, there were a ton of political anecdotes at this time about the whole thing. And sadly, that was the most interesting part about all these situations. The people who worked there just went their own way, doing their thing, not being shot, and uh, the interviews with them are... Kind of disappointing going out, going into minute details about the secrecy and how they pull Lenin from a bathtub and then experiment on these other corpses and then wash, wash them. But that's not that interesting and it's not what this show is all about. This show is all about the cultural phenomenon which were explicitly clear in the first part. And what becomes clear in the second part is how this mausoleum became another part of this culture. Remember, it was the reverence and the way of nature of, of people grieving, right? Well, now there were slogans like Lenin lives, Lenin lives eternally. These were spewed everywhere. But as the people from the revolutionary era got older, and, and this memory was lost over time, the government had to polish up this personality, personality cult of Lenin because the state needed its own relics, its own version of religion. So they started to bring out people who had met Lenin while he was still alive and used them as important figures of history, propping them up and making them tell various stories and it got published, else, published everywhere and they went on to congresses and give lectures and 
And it happened even if they literally had nothing to do with the whole thing. Now, there was a famous painting in the Soviet Union where Lenin was basically working in one of these sudebniks, because uh, Lenin and his era had instituted these uh, Saturday work-alongs, essentially, where everyone, even though Saturday was uh, was a week, was a day off, Saturday was a holiday, people were invited, <clears throat> uh, basically forced to volunteer to go into these sudebniks and just, you know, do extra work for the country, help bring country together. And, you know, in one of these events... There's a picture of Lenin carrying a huge log, and there's another guy whose face we can't see in the background, who's helping Lenin carry this log, who's carrying the log with him. They basically, uh, they at the end of this, there are about, like, at least 10,000 or more. There were tons of people who claimed to be the guys with whom Lenin carried the log, which became a joke in itself. But this wasn't, wasn't the only type of joke that was going on, because... Uh, Lenin reverence from serious grief and a way of catharsis and expressing themselves for the people really became became a joke, just like everything in the Soviet Union. When something is taken to the extremes, the Soviet people just just make fun of it, really. And uh, and here are some some picked by me because uh, one of the stories is like this: a, ma- a man returns home and and he he enters the room and and then finds out that that his wife is there there with a lover. And, you know, he's just, you know, kind of preparing to beat him up and, and just being very, very, very crazy. And and the, the wife just screams at him, Hey, hey, don't you dare beat him! He's so Lenin alive! Yeah, it was about, about this level of reverence. And there's another one. Um, year 1917. Lenin goes to a public bath. There are no, no free spots there. The, the, no, not far from him, a proletariat person is sitting there. And, and he's like on on this 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 one chair. He's sitting on on one one kind of this stool there, and and he's he's putting his legs up on the other one and kind of you know steaming his his feet. And Lenin just just uh, wor- just goes and talks with him. <clears throat> Comrade, could you could you please lend me a stool here? Ah, go to hell. Lenin Lenin goes goes back a bit. He's kind of freaked out and weirded. And, and doesn't find another stool and goes back to the, the comrade and says, Comrade, well, this is not, not communistical. We, you have like two stools and I don't have a, I don't have a single one. Uh, and the comrade replies, well, you know, go to hell. Just, just get lost or I'm just gonna smack you with this stool on the head if you don't, don't, don't get lost. <clears throat> Fifty years later, the, the chairman of, of a meeting. <clears throat> and now, before you, uh, with with uh, his memories, stands an old working person who not once but twice spoke with Lenin. So, <laughs> this was this was the weird weird stuff, and uh, all of this was kind of kind of crazy. And again, there are also some jokes about about Ines Armand and Krupska later on as well, because uh, in 1975 a mem- memorial plaque is being revealed. In a house in Moscow. <clears throat> in this house in 1910, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin hid together with Inessa Armand from Nadezhda Krupskaya, who were look- who was looking for them. <laughs> and all all that thing. And about and about the log, by the way. Another joke. And again, these all come from Odessa, and thus thus involve a lot of Jews. And don't don't hate me for this. I've explained how this this uh, Ashkenazi humor phenomenon previously, but. Here's one. <clears throat> uh, what are what are like what types of Pascha are there? Well, there are there are exactly three. There's the Jewish one about the memory of how the Jews left Egypt. There's the Christian one about uh, in the memory on how Jesus Christ resurrected, and then there's the Soviet one in the memory of how Lenin carried the log. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, and and uh, there's there's another and I'm I, I'm really sorry but honestly honestly I worked real hard on this and these jokes are again another memory of the zeitgeist of the era and we'll get into more of this uh, later on when we come to modern day but uh, one of my favorites is like mm, kids today we're going to theater we're gonna look at we're we're gonna look at the spectacle living living dead and Vovachka from the back row replies ah. It's, uh, I'm getting tired of all of this. All about Lenin, Lenin everywhere, nothing but Lenin. 
And yeah, uh, talking about how how the future was viewed. Another one was like you know there were a lot of jokes about in the in the sixties and seventies about how how the year two thousand would look if we would have waited in communism. And and here's one of those another another one nice examples of all the situation. <clears throat> year two thousand. The loudspeaker in the metro is speaking. <clears throat> Station in the name of Lenin. The next stop will be station in the name of Lenin. We are there are crossings to the station to the line of the name of Lenin and to the other line in the name of Lenin. Because you know this this whole thing just just went out of went out everywhere. But yeah, the final joke is these really got popular at the same time where the mass immigration to Israel was happening was um, was this one. Lenin resurrects, and, and he just instantly instantly goes goes to drink beer with the proletariat the the working men are just standing there drinking their beers and not even paying any attention to the, the great leader and and lenin just confused and asks what comrades did, didn't you like recognize me and they look at him and say ha ah, vanka look at this guy he's the dude from the 10 ruble from the 10 ruble banknote and okay 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 and this this will be uh, this will be the final one I promise. Old Bolshevik uh, on on this meeting goes and and you know is is sharing his memories about the great leader Lenin. Well, this happened on the second uh, second meeting of the party. You know, I go to the bathroom and our great leader is is just you know standing there in 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 this in the on the sidelines and you know he's just just pissing in, in, in uh, p- pissing there. But but you know I I I look at him, but but his eyes are so large and kind. I remember like I remember him like this forever. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for this uh, l- less formal part of the situation. But honestly speaking, yeah, um, this this is this is uh, what my dad used to tell me tell tell me about Lenin himself, and this is how he is literally engraved in the later generations of the Soviet Union. Because if in the beginning everyone was afraid of Stalin, then yeah, you can kind of observe the shifts of the mood from more serious and kind of expressing your grief through all this situation to this very common to us Soviet folks political jokes about literally whatever. So yeah, and so came the perestroika, and with that, with that ching, things changed um, yet again. And so Lenin managed to kind of <clears throat> live through the perestroika with quite a, quite ease. There were no major discussions about that situation, but anything really. But except there's one discussion at the beginning where the first discussion started about you know what to do with Lenin. In the May eighteen nine, in the May nineteen eighty nine, a director Mark Zaharov, who literally uh, spoke at the popular TV show A Look or Vzglad, he basically stated that you know maybe Lenin should be kind of really, you know, laid to rest in the Volkovsk Cemetery in uh, Leningrad or now Saint Petersburg, next to his mother. But that was about it. He managed to live through all this situation. But uh, things became interesting again, interesting in the sense that there's more to tell you than jokes, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the 1991, some political parties and, and you know, a lot of these uh, people up there in the Russian government, uh, they started to kind of bring, uh, bring forth uh, some discussion about how really Lenin should be taken out of the mausoleum and uh, how they really should be kind of brought out of, of how his remains should be brought out of mausoleum and buried together with his brain. Like I mentioned before, brain was brain was basically uh, basically kept in a specific institute of Lenin's brains, where it was uh, where it was kept there with like all these tens of thousands of the of of the these little samples of his brain which were previously been examined throughout the Soviet era and this these results uh, I couldn't find them even in Russian Russian archives they're still secret so we don't exactly know what was going on in this in Lenin's head by this point and mostly these ideas were were they were basically stated by Anatoly Sobchak which was the mayor of St Petersburg at the time and Yuri Lushkov which was the mayor of Moscow at this time at the spring of 1987, the president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, 
also uh, stated his opinion about you know how pres- how Lenin's body should needed to be really buried. Uh, uh, but this caused kind of a turmoil in the society at this time. In the April 1987, the Gosduma, uh, the most of which were back then communists, uh, basically made a special, created a special statement about all this presidential initiative, uh, which said, in part, the following. The statement of Boris Yeltsin is uh, completely useless. According to the Constitution of Russian Federation, uh, the the decision about moving moving the body is not included in what the president can do. First of all, the, the decision of putting him there was made by the Russian government, uh, the Soviet government at the time, in the second, uh, the second, uh, kind of the second Congress of the Soviets in the 26th of January 1924, and it was not made by the executive branch of the government. And they really kind of uh, declaring that the decision was not made by Stalin, but instead by the people. And secondly, that this mausole- mausoleum of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin is kind of this. Uh, mm, is a part of the u- unique ensemble of the Red Square and cannot be removed from it because uh, it has been included in the UNESCO un- UNESCO cultural heritage as as a monument. Now this is kind of interesting because uh, nobody is speaking about demolishing the the mausoleum. It's just that you know about moving the Lenin's remains there. So this never happened in the in the Yeltsin's era, and uh, Vladimir Putin also said uh, when he came to power in 2001 that he thought that moving Lenin's body was not timely at this point. He said in 2001, when I shall see that a complete majority of the people will want this, then we can we can start discussing about all of this situation. While I don't see this, it is not discussed. Now, I do have to mention that since 1981, the state... Uh, the state takes very little care of Lenin. Basically, the whole institute surrounded around this preservation, and there, by this point, uh, the leading experts of preservation of and embalming of, of bodies, they're, they're turned into a private enterprise, and they do private embalming services right now. Uh, in the 90s, they did so for the leaders of organized crime and for some private businessmen, which are tied together. Right now, it's mostly for... Uh, foreign dignitaries, mind you, they get a lot of requests from foreign countries, and they also get get some from uh, rich businessmen. And so they they do these deals where they you, you where you can hire the guys who take care of Lenin, and they will make sure that your relative's uh, dead body is preserved so that it would look really nice on the funeral. And they kind of uh, agree to preserve a body for no longer than a month before everyone can arrive to said funeral so that you know the body would endure if the funeral needs to be needs to be done later on then this is interesting because by now they completely refuse to do anything longer than a month uh, for anyone else who's not Lenin because uh, according to some interviews with these folks they don't really consider this to be a moral decision but still this is going on and they they're a private enterprise and they get they get donations so the russian state really well, they give some amounts of money, but it isn't as funded as it was before, where literally whole institutes and scientific offices and a bunch of money went into this project. But yeah, Mr. Putin stated that, you know, this would happen if uh, basically a majority of the people would want it. And uh, recently, the very, very recent thing which happened about the situation was in, uh, like, a few months ago, last month actually in the april 2017 where a bunch of a bunch of deputies from the uh, from the communist party which is like a liberal democratic party which is communist because uh, mr zhirinovsky is there and of course united russia the, the putin's party uh, they they kind of wanted to introduce in the gosduma a project of a law about transferring lenin's body the project Kind of looks uh, looks all about looks to change the law about uh, this whole Lenin's deal. Mm. Goes on to specify how exactly it would be done and everything. But right now, Putin has stated that you know it is still again too early to speak about making sure that Lenin actually is buried properly in the ground, 
even though Orthodox Church of Russia has stated many, many times before that, you know, it should be really done. And, you know, at this point, at this point, how Russia thinks is that that about 60% of Russian population are, in principle, agreeing with the fact that Lenin should really be buried in the ground. Either right now, which is 36%, are for it, or when the final people whom really Lenin matters a lot would pass away, then it should be done, and such people are 20, 24% of Russians. But there are still kind of rumors going around about this era. And a site which is dedicated to astrology, no less, and the occult in modern-day Russia, heavily criticizes this whole decision. Because uh, all of this, all of the situation, the fact that, you know, uh, from one part, they are really, really annoyed to the fact that in the heart of Russia, there is, there is a tomb where there's a dead body, and that this is not cultural, so they say. But at the same time, they quote some, some, some kind of orthodox sectarian people, more or less, who right now, who have stated that, you know, and made prophecies about what would happen if Lenin would ever be taken out of the mausoleum. And one of these, uh, one of these interesting prophets of the sectarians of the orthodox church is certain Matushka Alipi Kiseyova. And she said, <clears throat> She said that the war will will start uh, with uh, the war will start on the apostles of Peter and Pavel in the November. That will happen in the year when the dead body is carried out. And another kind of old venerated Orthodox sectarian monk, who is an important figure in this prophecy business of the Orthodox Church, stated that <clears throat> in in April when they will take the bold one out of the mausoleum the the complete crackdown and crash of Moscow will happen. And many, many waters will rise and very, very little of Moscow will remain. The sinners will be long, will, will still be swimming in the, in the salty water for long, but no one will save them. They will all die. Therefore, I recommend those who work in Moscow uh, just to leave. Uh, until uh, just just uh, leave when the, when the April of that year hits, and he doesn't specify the year. Astrakhanskaya, Vorodnevzhnaya, and Leningrad shall be also uh, also flooded. Everything ar- everything around thirty kilometers from our capital shall be destroyed. The God wanted to do this, all of these terrible things already in 1999. But our prayers stopped him and asked to ask him for more time. Now there is no time left. Only those who from the big cities will go and live in the countryside shall have a chance of surviving. It is it is useless to start building new homes in these in these villages. By the way, live in those who exist there. There is no time left for this. Better better buy a ready home. There will be a major, there will be a major, major starvation and epidemics of diseases. There will be no electricity, no water, no gas. Only those who can grow their own produce have a chance of surviving. China will rise, rise on us with their 200 million army and will conquer all the Siberia up to the Ural Mountains. The Japanese shall rule in the Far East. The Russia shall be cr- shall be sp- shall be crushed, and Russia shall be split into pieces. A major scary war will start. Russia shall remain in in the borders of the time of the Ivan the Terrible, the great the great pre great flood Saint Seraphim Savrovsky shall return. He will unite all the Slavic peoples and states, and will and will bring with himself a true czar. There will be such a famine, famine that those who had, who had taken upon themselves the <clears throat> seal of the Antichrist shall eat the dead. And the most important part is, pray and be, and be, be ready to changely quick your lives so that you wouldn't live in sin as there is no time left. And yeah, I'm sorry for this uh, crappy, crappy translation, but uh, he did this in very old, uh, old kind of ancient Russian language. But yeah, 
Right now there are beliefs that, you know, if even if you take Lenin out, major war shall start and terrible things shall happen. <laughs> so, you know, maybe maybe that's the reason why Putin isn't that interested in uh, removing Lenin's body from the tomb and actually, you know, burying it. Burying it uh, and giving it a proper burial. Oh, wow. And that's kind of crazy. But, you know, all, all jokes aside... I'd like to mention here in the end some small detail about the original guy, Pugorov's body. You know, that Russian doctor which I mentioned at the beginning and who was also preserved. You see, compared to the corpse of Lenin, which undergoes thorough maintenance in the special underground clinic twice a week, the body of Pigorov rests untouched and unchanging. It is said that only dust has to be brushed off. It resides at room temperature in the glass-lit coffin, while Lenin's body is preserved at a constant low. And you know, no, mostly not nobody knows about Pigorov's body while well, Lenin is a major object of tourism. Take it as you take it, take from it what you will, but uh, that's the thing about for whom the people care more and who's actually done some real good for the population. But hey, I might be completely wrong about all this situation, and uh, <laughs> and maybe we'll get to a major war if Lenin is moved. I don't know. Would you take the chance? Not sure. Anyway, see you next time when we'll talk about the father of all nations, Stalin, and how he started his own cult while using Lenin's, and how all of this Soviet country got going into the most bloody period of, ex of its existence. And, uh, see you next time, Tavarishi. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.